You're listening to the seventh episode of Season 4 of The Wicked Podcast. I'm very likely Mike Moore. This podcast is about songs written for or to or about women. Mostly, it's about how hard it is for a pair of human beings to form a healthy, lasting, close connection, particularly if their emotional and social development were messed around with by a strict isolationist rules and shame-based upbringing in their formative years. It is also about depression, words, and music. Each episode is me pontificating and ruminating around a song from my new album, Spurned, which is an old word that means rebuffed, turned away, and rejected. You can listen to the podcast like one watches a video of a car accident over and over again in slow motion. Episode 7. What to do with an angel. As we all know, a gentleman doesn't kiss and tell. I guess he definitely doesn't write and record a whole song telling about him kissing a young woman, or, in the case of this song, a young woman kissing him. Well, I guess I'm no gentleman. A regular rapscallion, that's me. Cat and Phoebe from the Feminine Chaos podcast, claim that while it's absolutely commonplace for straight women to write endlessly about their dissatisfaction with failed relationships and attempted relationships gone bad, it being in fact the easiest way to get published as a straight female journalist, and a way to get called brave for calling out those crappy men they didn't manage to lend, this is really only a thing for women to do. It's seen as is distasteful for a man to kiss and tell, I guess, in in the same way that a woman can. Distasteful or just not, or not, there's no sort of, it's not considered courageous. It might be something you could put on some, like, men's rights forum and people would care, but it's not something you could put in The Guardian. Yeah. But yeah, I think what you get in both this article and in that book Bad Sex, and it sounds like in these Juno Diaz X essays, and in, and this is something I wrote about to do with Bad Sex, but these, and that we've also talked about a ton on this podcast, like these New York Times woman writing about her divorce essays, these personal essays, is that like, the, the, the personal is political in some sort of infinitely relatable way, and that we've all been there. We all know this guy. We've all dated this guy, right? Right? I won't tell them if you don't. Going into my hard drives and finding old forgotten songs was quite a thing. The songs up until this one were not written to express any great amount of emotional pain or confusion beyond some very real disappointment and frustration. This one has a bit of those former two things in it, and here on out, every few songs there's going to be one I wrote therapeutically. Obviously, songs are supposed to elicit a mood, an emotional response in the listener. As the songwriter, you may be able to write something with a lot of feel to it without necessarily using the songwriting process as a way to dig yourself out of an emotional pit. But sometimes that's exactly what you're doing. I spoke with Susan Isaacs. Yeah, it's, it's art. We get that out of it. So we can make something from it. What I found that was pretty odd was that with those deeper, darker, therapeutically written songs, I would write and record them all in one go, usually, and then put them away and forget about them and the mood they packaged up and put away for me for decades. The next time I heard them, if I heard them at all, I'd have no idea how to play them or what the words said. They'd sound familiar, usually, but that's about it. And sometimes not even that. 
Opening those song files was like opening up an old box and getting plunged right back into the mood that made writing the song necessary to begin with, at least a bit. And I didn't listen to them one podcast episode at a time. I went through my hard drives all in the same evening while planning this season of the podcast and listened to a whole bunch of them, many of which I forgot had ever existed. It was a pretty weighty thing to go through emotionally, it transpired. At the time of my writing a song of this sort, someone might have seen me being deeply confused, hurt, and angry about some woman or other, and called this me being depressed about that situation. But for me, what I called, and continue to call, depression, is when I'm experiencing feelings of misery and despair for no concrete reason at all. These songs are written when I could, and do, in lyric form, tell you exactly what has shattered my little world. Because there was a real, concrete, unclinical, everyday thing making me understandably upset, just like anyone would feel. The sobering prospect of living out the rest of my days all alone, after all, after having quite enjoyed having a face to put on my imagined future life partner. Mourning the loss of that face. Something you'll notice in upcoming episodes, if you haven't noticed it already in prior ones, is that the more angry and sad and upset and confused I was when I wrote a song, the more inevitable it was going to be that there would be some dark joking around in the lyrics. I'm not sure why that is. Deep down, there's something in me that, when tempted to despair, panic, or give up, makes me sneer, makes me be sarcastic. Don't know what's up with that. It's pretty Gen X, I suppose, seeing something that's giving me grief and giving it the finger in return and saying, I don't care. I really don't. Honest. This song was written in the 90s while dealing with the almost immediate collapse of an attempt to start a relationship with someone new at work, which someone turned out to come with a life full of complications and problems. She was trying to get divorced from a man who was trying to bully and frighten her out of doing that, though they hadn't lived together for some time. She had kids whom her mom was helping her raise. She wasn't actually able to have a real relationship emotionally, but was delighted by attention from me and mainly just wanted something physical and seasonal, which isn't how I roll. This wasn't the only woman to try to scare me away with her past, only to find that she really couldn't deal with me being potentially able to deal with her past, rather than running away from her. So, as happens every time, she ran away from me. On one of our dates, she told me, Every time I have sex, it hurts, and I get pregnant. Every time. Despite that, she really seemed to want me to want to have sex with her. I wanted to, but like I say, that's not how I was rolling in the 90s at all. This woman had been a foster child, had suffered a lot of trauma, had grown up in poverty, but had a sparkle, a fighting spirit that I found bewitching. She's also not the first woman who took me to meet her mother, only to have her mother tell her, once I'd left, that I was out of her league, way, way too good for her, that I really didn't need her in my life. It's like the church moms who didn't find me recognizably church Christian enough, only in reverse. I never know what to do with that. I'm too good for her, so I have to be alone? People think that because sometimes I accidentally use nerdy words I read in books when I was a kid with no TV like utter, bailiwick, gestalt, and subterfuge in daily conversation that I'm all classy and shit, but actually my roots couldn't be more rural, and I'm positively made of bills, not money. I ran this by Harold. And she wasn't really in a position, she hadn't terminated her previous relationship, uh, she had kids, and I didn't mind, but she did. And so she basically told me, you're like an angel, and I don't know what to do with an angel. Like, you're just too good for me. Her mom said that she would ruin my life. And so I was thinking, I don't get to have a relationship with this woman because she and her mom have decided that I'm too good. 
Like, what do you think of that? Thank you. I'm better off without you. Yeah. Yeah. I, um, I, I didn't take it that way at the time. No, of course not. Um, as we get older, not everything's life and death. Mm-hmm. Death's coming soon enough. So, but not everything. Uh, but when we're young, younger, and we're, we're, we're learning about relationships and stuff, everything cuts deep. Mm-hmm. You know, every, everything uh, means you've, you've got to get out lost in love and all out of love and listen to them for hours and, and lay in bed, you know, like dying inside. And, and, and I think when you mature, especially with God, you realize that not everything is meant to work out. Yeah. And I mean, it helped for me to learn about the human brain and learn that it's not done cooking till you're about 25. And that's why that when you're 22 and you get dumped, your brain doesn't know that you're not dying. Your brain thinks you are dying. Absolutely. Michael weighed in. Well, in concrete terms, I have been dating two different women, not at the same time, mind you. But there's two different occasions where I was dating a woman enough that she decided to tell her mom about me and her mom met me and immediately told her that I was too good for her own daughter. That's happened twice. What do you think about that? That's awful. I mean, it's just to even say that, like who you shouldn't say that to your daughter, even if you don't think it's true and you're just doing it to to make it make it let her down easy because she thinks that you're a weirdo and she doesn't want your daughter around you. She's always too good for you. Even just to say that to your daughter, though, would, is awful. Yeah, my take on it, it seemed to me that in both cases, the women's lives needed a bit sorting out, like they were in a bit of a transition period. Um, and so they, their lives are not together. And I seemed like I had a, a together life. That's the central part of the one song. In that case, she wasn't quite willing to let me go to begin with. She just told me, yeah, my mom said, he's too good for you. You shouldn't bother that guy. And uh, and eventually she decided that that was true. She felt that she couldn't contribute what she thought she was getting, or she felt like she couldn't match at her end of the relationship what I was putting into it or something. Yeah. I used to imagine stories where I would rescue women back this was way early on. Um, I don't think I, I'm trying to think if I ever had a relationship where that was what I was actively doing. Um, you probably noticed that I've done that repeatedly. Yeah. I attract crazy people and or people who are in a crazy situation and they find me really calming and I'm very flattered and they seem to want to be around me a lot because I'm reassuring and to make them feel good about themselves. But they for some reason that rules out a romantic relationship and they generally have relationships with less suitable people. Yeah. Or sometimes they take the, the, uh, the tack of, well, you're too good for me. How often has that happened to you that you really liked a girl and her reason for not being with you was that you were too good for her. I have a whole song about that. Like, has that ever happened to you? Or are you talking about me? I was talking about you, but I, because I know that that, that you've experienced that. What do you think's going on there? Like the first assumption that any sane person would be is they're just being nice. They're just saying that you're too good for them because they don't want to hurt your feelings. But I almost think that they think they're bad or they think they're bad for me, certainly. And that's why that's said. It's, it's a self-respect. It's like you see in them what they're not seeing in themselves. And then they 
they refuse to believe it. That's that's an issue all over the place. It's not just brethren girls. I have, but they have that a lot. I know my sister Karen struggles with it. My wife struggles with so it. So it's not just me. Yeah, yeah. No, like it, it's. I I thought my wife was beautiful from the get go, and she never never actually believes me. She'll believe believe it up to seventy five percent sometimes. You know, like maybe I look good today, but for the most part, she never thinks she's beautiful. But it's the same thing. I what what I'm looking at is the spirit, right? It's it's the what she wants and is able to do. This green-eyed tall beauty really liked new country and bingo and hockey and McDonald's breakfasts and Tim Horton's coffee and so on. I liked none of that very much, but I liked her and her warm, fiery spirit. She was my height. I have always liked when women are my height, but I'm actually quite tall for a woman, so women my height normally go for guys who are as far over six foot as they can manage, just like the short women do. One explanation for why these things didn't work with me was just that I wasn't good enough. I didn't make the right choices. I wasn't a very good flirter. But another explanation is that I was playing a different game that didn't really read. And you're supposed to kind of go in the back door, so to speak, that you pretend it's not serious and then it gets serious. And I think I was pretty overt about I was pretty seriously looking. And I think that's terrifying to a lot of women. I wasn't like, hey, I'm looking for a wife. Would you like to apply? Like Doug or somebody made like a wife application form that he mockingly handed out at Bible conferences. Do you remember that? Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Apply to me. <laughs> yeah, I think Doug did that. Wife application form went to conferences and handed it out to cute girls. And that's a perfect example of joking about something that you're not supposed to joke about because it's too serious for a lot of people to, to allow joking about it. One of the last times I saw this woman, she dropped by my place after dropping her kids off at school, hair not done, no makeup on, wearing a sweatshirt, jeans, and her winter coat. And she explained that we just couldn't work. I expressed concern that I hadn't been very interesting or fun. And she called me so stupid and grabbed me hard by the bathrobe I'd put on in order to answer the door somewhat in a state of dress, pulled me into her embrace, and kissed me very urgently and communicatively like I've never been kissed before, holding onto my robe like it was keeping her from drowning. For my part, I had my arms awkwardly around her winter coat, feeling its undone zipper against the bare skin of my chest where the robe gaped open. Oh, I've kissed women who were more aggressive or messier with it, but her kiss was nothing but yawning, aching, bottomless need for someone just like me, right there, right then, with an aftertaste of sorrow, regret, and goodbye that was absolutely intoxicating. I have never tasted anything like that since. I was probably supposed to drop a robe right there and then, but I didn't. And so we said goodbye. That's not a euphemism. We just said goodbye. And she left. But I also had this theory or this suspicion that when women had you in their orbit, so to speak, in terms of physical attraction, and you could say no to them, first of all, they didn't believe that you should be able to do that. So they would take it as personal failure. They were trying to change my religion. And a couple of them apologized for having done that afterwards. They basically were pretty confident that either guys would talk the way I was talking, but wouldn't mean it, or that they would be able to break through the, the silly little, you know, Judeo-Christian 2,000-year-old religion. And we know what guys want. Right. And I also felt like as long as they didn't have, so to speak, their hooks into me physically, they felt like they didn't have me properly. And they didn't feel they could get me properly. They didn't feel like they had control that they needed. They're used to having a pretty firm grip on a guy, you know, by the crotch. And that didn't happen. 
And I, I think that part of the reason why a lot of girls that I try to pursue, I don't think they feel comfortable dealing with a guy who that they don't get to rule sexually. I think that's probably the case with a lot. And or are we big sexists? Well, you're big sexists, dude. Of course but we are. There's not that many guys who don't buy into it and, and just let it happen and also let, let the urges be the controller. Uh, it is it is a whether you look at it as as a religious thing or not, being able to determine what is real and what do I want to go for and put that above what the natural body desires that I have um, and holding firm to that does a thing for a person that is extremely good. It made me feel like I went to a casino and I'm sitting at a poker table, but instead of playing poker, I'm filling out some investment portfolios. <laughs> I'm looking at mutual funds and tax shelters and I'm sitting in there doing that. And people are like, hey, you want to play craps? It's like, well, let's sit here and fill out mutual funds. And they're like, um, that sounds like a really laudable thing, but that's not what I'm here to do. Yeah, that's an excellent analogy. I spoke about this with Evan. Because that that's off the table, kissing stops being like a precursor to more and it becomes the thing and oh it, i see it becomes huge it becomes it becomes everything yeah I, I i i think when you wait uh all of the physical intimacies uh can increase right so so even holding hands even cuddling right like yeah you know maybe kissing is further down the list than than those things but everything feels a bit heightened right it almost makes me think that you know teenagers who are doing various sexual things mm -hmm. and these older teenagers who are just holding hands or just kissing it all kind of ends up being the same thing really right because it's sort of it's you know to to one dimensionalize it it's sort yeah. of further it's it's as far as you've gone down that road and it's one dimensional not going anywhere mm -hmm. probably doing it for its own sake and i, I think that might be a topic that what we're looking at is that grown-ups may or may not view sex as something you do purely for its own sake in isolation from everything else. We never spoke again in person, though I saw her again one time. This is what happened. A couple of months later, in a shopping mall, I saw her walking briskly away from me. You know how someone all the way across a shopping mall from you can be obviously walking right towards you and you can tell? She was doing the exact opposite of that. I'm pretty sure she'd seen me before I saw her, but the intensity of her walking away drew my eye. We never met in person or spoke again. I watched her walk out of sight. I did communicate with her over Facebook and by email years later when I taught her kids, and she added me as a friend on Facebook at that point, but nothing personal was communicated between us or any indication we'd ever dated. I don't know what she told her kids about me, but one of them didn't like me much. It was awkward teaching that kid years ago, I can tell you, especially seeing her eyes so incredibly similar to her mother's, looking disapprovingly at me from her teenage face when she was not getting good grades from me, simply for not coming to school or doing her work very much. Anson and I had been talking about online dating and so on, and about the problems with trying to use dating apps to meet people you're not going to have awkward ties to if things don't work out, but finding that's simply not possible if you live anywhere but a really big city. The conversation quickly moved on to kids these days and our phones. I did date somebody, um, and this is in Ottawa, so this is not even a small town. It's a, it's a small city. But I, yeah, I dated somebody 
in Ottawa. And because she had connections around here, it didn't last very long. But I did end up teaching most of her kids and saw her in a shopping mall one time, you know, walking away to avoid talking to me. And yeah, that's that's tough. And I mean, I'm sure that conventional wisdom at the time would be that you should date local people. But that that's his whole own thing. And I haven't had success with it either. This may be a weird connection to draw. But um, you know how you used to go to your friend's house, relative's house, and you just knock on the door and they didn't know you were coming. And that was normal. That was because you might not yeah. even knock. You just kind of walk in and because it's your, your yep. brother, brother or something. And now it's like you have to text and get a response and they have to say, oh, yeah, OK. And then you can go to their house and, and it's all electronically done. And that's not even yep. rom- romantic, but it's so much more electronic. Yeah, there's, there's also a whole lot more of, well, don't phone me, just text me and and don't walk two blocks over. Just text me. There's so much of that going on. Yeah. So my father-in-law, you know, I'm, I'm now, as you know, divorced, but I still talk to him on a regular basis, you know, at least twice a month, mm-hmm. sometimes more. And, you know, in recent years, what typically happens is my son and I will go over for dinner, like on a Friday night, you know, we, we kind of chat either for lunch or dinner and we'll stay not more than three hours, usually two, but, but in that course of two hours, you know, we chat, we have a meal the TV is usually on, so we may, you know, kind of chat about what's on the TV. But it's not uncommon for at some point during that two or three hours, I'll kind of check out, you know, I'll take out my phone and he's watching TV, kind of arguing with the news or whatever. Grandma's, she and I are both, uh, we, we need to sign up for the Society of Creative Anachronisms because we're both completely wedded to the idea of my son being able to write in cursive so she mm-hmm. finds a way somehow to get him to write something in cursive and he's got like a treat box you know if he finishes this sentence or whatever so they might be doing that and i'm playing on my phone so we're all kind of doing different things for a while and you know sometimes i feel bad like oh you shouldn't have my cell phone out but i don't want to watch my son draw in cursive in that moment mm-hmm. i don't want to talk about fox news with my father-in-law mm-hmm. um and, you know, I'll chime in from time. I'll look up from the phone, chime in. and, and But I can kind of see him, you know, observing because he doesn't really use a cell phone at all. Uh, yeah. So he just kind of looks on with a mixture of amusement and, I don't know, maybe mild distaste at how wedded people are to their phones. And he's like, I could never live that way. You know, like, it's just unthinkable to him. It's amazing what it's changed because he's watching a TV. I can't believe how many people increasingly never touch a computer and never turn on a TV because it's all in their hand. And, uh, you know, back in the day, we would have predicted that people, kids would want like the loudest speakers and the biggest screens. And it's the opposite. They want to watch the latest Hollywood blockbuster in their hand. Yeah, it's weird. I mean, he and I are, we're doing the same thing. You know, we're kind of like avoiding the heavy work so to speak, of a meaningful conversation. You know, we're content to see each other, share a meal, mm-hmm. exchange some verbal news. You know, we, we, we do have real conversation. You know, he's, he's a retired farmer, mostly retired. He's just got one cow now. And when I met him, he didn't say too much. But it's, it's weird. You know, it's, I mean, he's looking at me like, wow, you know, this world has really changed. You're, you're just in a different realm. But it's, it's a related realm. I mean, he, he is very much consumed with tv to his wife's dismay um he's an artist you know i mean she (laughs) 
a few years ago, she got him, you know, a, a painting set, you know, and was hoping that he would start painting again. And I don't know if he has or not, but I, if I had to bet, you know, I'd say probably not, you know, right. But this, I don't know, TV, cell phone, computer, like it's really divorcing us. We, we grow ever more distant from each other while inhabiting the same space. And it's kind of weird. It's like, you know, I was reading about, remember the, the matrix movies. Yeah. Yeah. I read about the directors, you know, and just kind of their philosophy and, and, and what they were exploring with those films. I only really remember the first one. I think I saw all of them, but. And nobody um, remembers the other ones, whether disturbing. they watch them or not. I mean, it's, I don't know what to make of it, truly. Well, and, and nobody was in control or, or predicting it, and it has already happened. Um, so because I work in a high school, I see things every day, like a cafeteria that's filled with kids shoulder to shoulder, all on their phones. And one of the things I can't tell is that they're mostly interacting with people who are in their phones and some of them are sitting across from them and some of them aren't. Huh. I, I can't tell by looking whether they're texting the person sitting across from them because they, they are sometimes, or if it's somebody in a different country, what you're describing rings true that they like sitting, you know, with a group of people, even if they're not going to talk to them or they'll be separately on their phones. They like kind of physically being in proximity, even so. As for the subject of this episode's song, Facebook announced that she'd gotten divorced, moved away, and gotten remarried, as far as I know, quite happily, and sometimes plays bass and sings in her husband's country band, broadcasting from their living room right through COVID. She never played bass for me. I have to play my own parts myself, so to speak. It looks like her life really straightened out in the intervening years, and I'm very glad for her. Let's look in the Wicked Mailbag. About workplace romances, Curry writes, There are a few things to consider here. Most working people spend as much and in some cases more time with the people they work with than anyone else. Depending on the nature of your work, people are often overcoming obstacles and solving problems together. Workplace romances are expected, understandable, and unsurprising. A meaningful number of relationships begin at work. There is nothing inherently wrong with meeting someone at work. Absolutely nothing. It's usually a bad idea to conceal a workplace romance and usually doesn't work anyway. The best thing to do is to be open and honest with colleagues and management or ownership if applicable. Bottom line, trying to hide it is likely only going to lead to gossip and complications. Dating up and down the hierarchy structure, though, is really inappropriate. Call me old-fashioned, but I believe that it's worse when a man dates a woman who reports to him than vice versa. Regardless, when one individual holds power and influence over another in the workplace, dating is flat-out inappropriate. The only solution, if the feelings are deep and genuine, is for one person to make a change in their work so one does not report to the other, period. Affairs. Pretty straightforward. Always a terrible idea in the workplace or otherwise. Even worse in the workplace, because livelihoods are on the line. 
just don't. I know I've all too often been the guy at work that women at work confide in about their husband at work having an affair at work on her with a woman at work whom we all know at work. I had a deeply felt bit of existential angst and lost feeling this week. Not about my own existence per se, but my own existence as someone who makes music. Michael Vetter is a really good visual artist and sculptor. Whether anyone wants him to do art or not, Michael sees himself as primarily an artist. That's what he's good at, so him viewing himself as primarily an artist first and foremost is a given, and it's simple for him. Well, I guess like my love life, my story as to a life of music has been longer, stupider, and harder to explain, but I will try. I grew up singing hymns at church most days of the week with no instrument accompaniment. It was all voices. My Plymouth brethren, American aunt and uncle, made cassette tapes of they and their brethren friends doing bluegrass-style jams on old, old hymns. Cassette recordings with all the instruments that we didn't get to use at church, and everything. The hymns were mostly Victorian ones or older, and I wanted in on that sort of thing. It sounded like the best thing ever to do, but I wasn't really included in that. I didn't live nearby, and besides, everyone feared I might get into the rock and the roll. Thank heavens that has never, ever happened. My dad had recording gear, but not really for music and had no interest in recording anyone doing music. But when I played my first real instrument, the trumpet, soon joined by harmonica, which I played only briefly and never mastered it, I needed a band to play with, or a recording to play along with. Those instruments go best with a lot of other instruments. For me, music has been a solitary thing, though, mostly. I have always wanted to make and have recordings. I could write poems and lyrics, and I was up for performing them live, though that's like going skydiving if you're an introvert. Terribly good for you, but you don't exactly do it every Tuesday night. What I really wanted was to make albums of my own songs. I wouldn't have minded radio play and so on, but for me, what I wanted was to explore where this avenue of creativity would take me, to have to figure it all out, to be taken on a journey by it, not something to mail off to someone else and get back in the post having done none of it myself. When Michael Vetter has the glimmer of an idea for a painting or sculpture, he doesn't wonder where he can find an audience who can watch him paint or sculpt it, or to look at it and buy it when he's done. He doesn't need anyone to help him hold the clay or the brush. And he does it to do it because it's in him to do. Neil Gaiman says you know you're a writer when you find you just keep on writing things. I guess I'm a writer then. Books, songs, podcast scripts, stuff like that. They just keep happening. Being a successful writer requires a different criteria entirely. When I recorded stuff with Dad's church gear and then on a four-track recorder, people were impressed with what I could do with that rudimentary equipment. Then I got serious. On my slender salary, I started paying by the hour to go into a cheap little recording studio to get recorded on better gear than I had at the time, though my modern gear now sounds better. I was paying to be recorded to an Alesis ADAT recording machine that must have cost about 2000 bucks at least back then. I bought one a few years back because I found one online for about 200 bucks. I've never really used it properly yet. I always mean to. 
But my computer stuff is not only far, far easier to use, it's just better in every other possible way too. There was this time in the 90s when I was being recorded on these ADAT tapes with musicians who were much better than I was, playing the other parts of my pretend band, making songs in an attempt to sound like albums I listened to. Chris, the sound guy, said, Wait, how would you perform this one live? How indeed. When I wrote songs, I was imagining a lot of sounds and instruments, like Bruce Springsteen with the E Street Band or Pink Floyd with a stage full of musicians. And I wasn't Bruce Springsteen or Pink Floyd. And I never learned to play acoustic guitar so well, I didn't need a single other person on stage with me. Rappers don't need to explain all of this. I'd started on cassette recorder and had done well, so I'd leveled up. Now I was joining all of those other local musicians who were paying more than they could afford to try to get a recording that would sound like and fit in with the other stuff that was on the radio. Every one I knew failed. Their recording sounded clean, careful, and a bit thin and boring. Almost like something that might be on the radio, but not really. You could tell. They all had a box of CDs somewhere that no one would ever open or listen to. Entire albums that no one much ever had listened to. I went and saw them live, and they sounded a lot better live than on the CD. There was little personality or performance on it. Everyone was shooting for a 90s radio single. It's boring? Make it louder. Compress it harder. Make shorter, punchier songs. Shorter, shorter, punchier, punchier. Never mind Bohemian Rhapsody, American Pie, Alice's Restaurant, Joe's Garage, Great Gig in the Sky, Hotel California, Batter to Hell, or Stairway to Heaven. Singles needed to be under three minutes long now. They needed simple, relatable lyrics and predictable song structure. The airwaves were not filled with anyone who sounded like early Bob Dylan or anything like that anymore. So in the 90s, I wished I was making albums in the 70s. I wanted more leeway. I wanted to be free to take a long time working out things that were cool and heartfelt and unusual. I wasn't banking on extensive music training and song complexity to try to make something unusual, either. I was wanting to get back to that old well. Three chords and the truth, singing a song and meaning it so that people felt and thought things in response. I didn't know anyone who wanted to record people. That was just me. And I was one of those people who was trying to do everything write songs, but also perform them, and also record them. It was like I was forever making demos of songs that no one else was ever going to make real versions of, and I myself, if I remembered, would have another go at a newer version of an old song here, an old song there, and that just kept happening, and the songs never got finished. I was better each time, and my gear was better each time. There was never a deadline to meet. That's why there's a podcast. But back in the day, I knew I was missing an it, what every artist thinks he or she has, a thing that means people, despite there being better people around than you, because of it, people glom onto you and keep coming back for more of it. I had nothing like an it, no secret sauce, no special flavor that made things sound just like me. But did that mean that I had to stop making songs and playing with sounds? People kind of thought so. This would cost a mint to do right. So I needed to expect to be making a mint with it in order for it to make sense to do it at all. I met Howard when I was going into the studio. Howard, not Harold. Howard heard that more music was being made and wanted to add the title of producer to his resume. Wanted to shepherd us lost sheep using his experience, which was admittedly slightly beyond ours, which wasn't all that hard. Howard knew how things were generally done. There were demos and there were live albums and there were studio albums and greatest hits albums all looking to make money and garner or please an audience. And there were amateurs like me doing what's called vanity projects, 
not because we were really vain about our appearances, but because we wanted to do it for no career or monetary reason. Amateurs, recording in vain, to no purpose. There were no purposes available to us besides fame and money. Professionals didn't do all the jobs when an album was being done right either. There were songwriters, performers, recording engineers, producers, mixing engineers, mastering engineers, album art artists, and many, many others. And they were all different people, all collecting different paychecks. That's what worked, we were told. That's what I was supposed to do if I could afford it. And if I couldn't afford it, there was really no point trying. Only, for almost everyone, ever, that model doesn't work either. Nothing much does, in fact. Not if you want wealth and fame. I heard a YouTuber today sketch out the supposedly ideal career arc for songwriters. First, you're a creative, and creatives commit suicide with much, much greater frequency than run-of-the-mill folks statistically. So you do this. You suffer, then you create. And you then suffer through years of playing to empty rooms of no one caring. Then, somehow, you make it big, and your reward is to make millions performing your suffering songs for millions, enjoying sex and drugs with the rock and roll for a time, and you die young, before you've had to work through your suffering enough to figure out how to live more comfortably as yourself. This image is celebrated because one day you make it big, and then big stars party hard, trash hotel rooms, do a ton of drugs, drink themselves to sleep at night, and struggle with the life on the road and the life of an artist, and what an honor it is to die young either by accident or by your own hand. Although the studies and statistics I could find on this are a little bit blurry at best, it's estimated that creative types, and musicians especially, are 15 times if not more likely to take their own lives than the average person. And even this is celebrated in this weird, twisted way. They go out on their own terms, and they left us at their peak. They burn out rather than faded away. And we're left to pour over their works theorizing over all that could have been and celebrating this eternal greatness. That's what the Beatles, Rolling Stones, Pink Floyd, Kiss, the Beach Boys, Eric Clapton, Bon Jovi, Van Halen, Pearl Jam, ZZ Top, and Fleetwood Mac all did, isn't it? That's the dream almost no one manages to attain. Now, I know a score of guitarists who are only guitarists and are much better than I am. Thing is, they don't generally write and instead just do this. They noodle around and around and work out how to play the instrumental guitar parts of classic rock songs that they like. They can play the intro to almost any song you could name, but when the singing starts, they don't bother learning that bit of any of the songs. So they can't actually play songs in a band working with a singer or a drummer, and they aren't looking for a singer. If you're over at their house and people have been drinking and smoking and the instruments come out, the fact that you know the words and can sing the song is not welcomed. That's not what it's all about. Why would anyone want to hear singing? I mean, really. The song's supposed to take 17 minutes to play without any singing. Several times I have been sitting in on one of these extended jam sessions, and I keep being handed a bass or drumsticks. Most bands you're likely to know people in are cover bands, playing songs that they already know their audiences already know they like. Why on earth would anyone write new songs? You can't beat the Beatles. You will never be as good as Matthew Good. You won't ever top ZZ Top. So why AC do it to begin with? And there's really no point, then, in recording yourself, either, ever. Those albums were recorded decades ago, and you're never going to top them. And I know guitarists who can improvise fiendishly difficult guitar bits 
And if you try to stick them into a song, they struggle to fit in it and aren't really reacting to it. They're just emitting notes that might be in the same key and tempo and hoping to wedge them into your song. For them, music's not about singing words or telling a story or anything like that. It's about fiendishly complicated finger exercises. I mostly know musicians who play other people's music and maybe have a song or two of their own. I don't know very many songwriters at all. That seems to be rare, almost as rare as recording guys. And when they've heard my songs, of which there are legion, most musicians are bemused. These don't sound like they belong on the radio. These don't sound like I know what I'm doing. People like Tom Waits and Leonard Cohen and Bob Dylan and Neil Young recorded all kinds of things that never really fit in any of the usual places. It wasn't like they were going to be used in an Instagram ad for Lipton's iced tea anytime soon. Maybe not even in a movie soundtrack anywhere either. So why did they even make that stuff? Even the Beatles, masters of writing and recording the radio single, even the Beach Boys, needed to make what people called experimental music. Even people like Neil Young, with an established radio sound, needed to make a techno album and other things like that. They had it in them to make. Call it a vanity project, if you like. It is the most me thing ever, that I almost never do a damn thing to try to please anyone, but then agonize endlessly over how often people express their displeasure with me in insulting terms. So... I was making weird stuff on my four-track recorder that I really enjoyed making and having. That was the heart of me making art. And none of it was aimed at the radio. And I wasn't either a prog rock or jazz guy trying to personally innovate what constituted popular music, nor was I a blues or folk musician looking to write songs that sounded exactly like a thoroughly established genre. I wasn't trying to blend. I wasn't doing anything anyone was doing exactly. I didn't know how, mostly. I didn't even bother to learn how to do what everyone was doing for the most part. The thing about writing songs is you seldom write something you don't know how to play, so you write things that you do know how to play. When I have worked with really good musicians, I am often surprised that they can't see the structure of my songs. They don't know when the chorus is coming, for instance. They don't know what to do in the bridge or when it's over. Everything sounds too simple and repetitive to be worth calling a song and yet ask them to play on it and they struggle to learn the changes. Often, I'm not signaling musically what's happening lyrically. Most musicians aren't listening to the words you're singing anyway. To quote Serge, this, this one, one just, just keeps, keeps doing, doing the same, same thing until the end, end and then it stops. stops. Yeah, exactly. Nothing fancier than that. In the early 2000s, Susan Isaacs asked me to write some faux church worship music for something she was working on, wanting something that sounded like it was by early 2000 hipsters in California, where she tried and failed to fit in with various churches out there. She wrote some pretty bad words for this music, too, and asked me to breathe annoyingly while singing it, like she'd heard in a church she'd endured one Sunday morning there. Can I say, hey, 
Susan was raised Lutheran and never really got modern church hipster music any more than I did. We were raised to hate it, and we found that in return, it really seemed to hate us right back. So I made Susan something. I pretended it was a song called Speechless by a worship team called the Faithfire 316 Anointed Worship Team. Susan said it was really funny how I just kept repeating the same chord progression over and over. I didn't tell her that A, yes, church worship music also does that a lot, but B, I do that a lot, so I wasn't being clever. I wasn't above that kind of songwriting at all. I was also not above writing more music mocking hipster church music, it turned out. I did something else that I sent to Susan, too. Here's He Loves Me, Cause I Believe, by a pretend Christian band I called Water and Blood, using the four magic pop song chords and the kind of things Christians say to and about people like me who don't enjoy going to their church. I believe, I believe, yeah, I believe. 
My church's view was that joking was never helpful or okay. Susan, being a comic actress, acting coach, and screenwriter who has read the Bible, has professional nuanced views on when it's time to be serious and when it's helpful to joke about things. A whole lot of art mixes the two together in sometimes complex ways. I think it's, it's an escape valve. I think partially if that's in your DNA, it's going to come out. You know, when I'm writing scripts, sometimes like if you've ever watched a comedy that has a little bit of a heart, you can get kind of emotional and then you kind of have to have a joke to bring us back. Mm -hmm. But I think um, sometimes the risk is to take it out and just let the song be sad and vulnerable. Mm -hmm. But other times it's, it's, you know, as they talk about um, comic relief. If things, you know, that there's a reason why that phrase is, is there, because sometimes the pain is so great. We just need a, a relief. Um, it is something that Joss Whedon is criticized for because he, you know, I'm very Generation X, I'm the 90s. And so it's all about mocking and not not being sincere and not being mm-hmm. honest. And what Joss Whedon made a science of, and I think he and Kevin Smith and all the people of my generation, Matt, Matt, uh, stone and trey parker we're kind of a little tired of their shtick a little bit and i think a lot of people are getting into the disney and the pixar and the and the sentimentality mm-hmm. and they love it what people like joss whedon are accused rightly of doing is getting a really dark and moody scene and then mm-hmm. punct- puncture with a joke and that always makes people laugh they always like it but it, it sometimes does what you're saying that maybe have the courage to leave it sad and see what happens yeah yeah I tried a bunch of other churches, but I just couldn't feel modern soccer mom church or these kinds of songs. I suppose this sort of nonsense is why some people think I'm an atheist or that I hate the Bible and want to hurt Christians. When I asked for clarification on this accusation last time I heard it, one guy told me that I had done a lot of damage. When I asked for further clarification, he said I had wounded the body of Christ itself. So I asked him if he was suggesting I had wounded the Apostle Peter, the Apostle Paul, Martin Luther, John Calvin, and Brethren founder John Nelson Darby, as they were and are, we believe, all members of that body of believers. And the guy was confused. He knew what he knew, and no niggling little facts were going to trick him out of knowing that he knew it. I first heard the expression three chords and the truth on a live bootleg of U2 during their Joshua Tree tour. I was filled with wonder at the idea that three chords and sincerity in a song could reach people. I wanted to do that, so my song was as simple as church music. But then, Howard showed me a place where I could alter the chord progression in my song, The Vulture Song, and Bill showed me how to do bridges in different keys from the main song. I am even known to do a pre-chorus from time to time. I attempt a lot of production and mixing and performance stuff to try to make the songs sound a bit less repetitive than what they really are. But what I'm looking to do is to sing one line and get that line stuck in your head. I think Bono of U2 is always trying to do that exact same thing. Where the streets have no name, with or without you, Sunday bloody Sunday, in the name of love, one love, one life, when it's one need in the night. Love is blindness. It's a beautiful day. Bono is trying to sing a song that has what he calls a top-line melody, a sung line that stays with you and tempts you to sing along with it, playing in your head everywhere you go, all day. It's not a guitar riff, a blazing guitar solo, a groove, a rhythmic hook, or something like that. It's just that, something you want to sing. I think I'm always trying to create the same phenomenon as he is. 
I grew up singing hymns in church with no instruments allowed, just the voices, singing slow, sad, beautiful songs. So that's still what's easiest for me. Adding in country or rock or folk ideas to that is me trying to ice that cake and make it more palatable to more people, to make it sound like I'm in a band who wrote this song with me. But of course, I have no band. So my four-track stuff sounded too good to just be recorded on a four-track with just me, but in the studio with a stand-in collection of musicians and all the semi-professional gear, it usually ended up sounding not good enough to bother recording in a studio with them. Much like everyone else's stuff that I knew, though. It all sounded fine at best, but pointless. My ex-brother-in-law's former band Vinegar Tom and the Nicotine Cowboys was fun to record for them because they weren't trying to sound like anyone, didn't really know how to sound like anyone, and were doing their own selves as hard and loud as they could. No matter what you thought of them, how good or bad, talented or hack, solid or shaky you decided they were, no one sounded much like them at all. And I always loved that about them. Most bands I was in were trying their best to be a classic rock playlist on Spotify. I think, at my best, I'm trying, just a bit, to sound like other people, and failing, and not really minding. Like most musicians do. And even every time I see suspenders, I, I feel honored. And now you're actually inside of them. And Mo, and Mo you gave us. Mo, you had a little bit there. Don't get greedy, Larry. I already threw you, Mo. Okay. All right, how about Chief Wiggum? How about him? You, have any, uh, you don't have any legal problems that I should know about, do you, Larry? <laughs> any legal trouble? Voice actor Hank Azaria, along with Harry Shearer, does most of the incidental voices on The Simpsons. Where does Azaria get all of these character voices from? From doing half-assed imitations of JFK, Stallone, Schwarzenegger, Edward G. Robinson, Al Pacino, and a score of others. If he did them perfectly, it would not be as good. I think I'm aspiring to that same half-assedness myself, but in music. To sound like me, I'm recording myself doing my stuff, but also I'm often trying to sound a little like someone else and not quite getting them. It makes me travel some distance from doing exactly the same thing all the time, but keeps me from being in a tribute band for Foreigner or Supertramp or whoever, not that there's anything wrong with that. So this week, I made the mistake of letting a few people who are far better musicians than me hear last week's song when I was working on it. I was mixing drums, recorded with 12 drum mics for the first time ever, and trying to mix heavy, loud, aggressive stuff again, which I really love to do, but I'm not terribly good at singing, playing, recording, or mixing. And predictably, I got exactly the same old kind of advice that I got years ago. Maybe you shouldn't sing your songs. Maybe you shouldn't play guitar. Maybe you shouldn't record stuff. You definitely shouldn't be trying to mix things, dude. Mixing songs is for special people you pay lots of money to when you have a recording contract. I was told the drums in my mix of last week's song sounded, and I quote, like poo, and was told that this was being tactful. 
I'm not trying to be a dick, just being honest, man. Gotta be honest, right? So I had to think. I already have a head full of dark thoughts. And I also have a little bag of tricks I use for situations just like this when I'm finding it impossible not to believe someone who is telling me to quit or that I suck, joining their voice to the one in the back of my head. I've needed this bag of tricks, given how I grew up. First trick, I realized that this isn't like two people having a normal interaction. I've been vulnerable, and they haven't. I've opened myself up to the very real possibility of getting wounded. Now, good people, acting well, never stick the knife in right at that point. They don't leap upon it as an opportunity to get you. So when people do that, they're either hurting about something, trying to hurt you, or both. It doesn't speak well of them. Oh, sure, they will tell you they're just being honest, but something else seems to be going on. Hurt, breeding, more hurt. Second, Second trick. trick. I invite them to help fix the situation they are shitting so copiously upon. And then I see how useful they are. They know better? Well, then... What would they do instead? Very often, this is where their claims to know better tend to fall down a bit. It's far easier to say you hate something than to say how to fix it or how to do it right. I watch too many YouTubers who hate watch TV and movies, but the ones I really respect are the ones with really clear ideas as to what would have been better. So you think The Last Jedi or The Rise of Skywalker were poorly plotted? What would have worked instead? What did the story demand? What was it missing? So the people saying my drums sounded like poo and the people who said my mixing sucked were invited to point me towards mixing the song better. They provided various variations upon I'm too busy to even think about that, I just don't know, it sucks, and well, I don't actually mix, I don't know how, I just know that yours doesn't sound like this stuff on Spotify. So I had to decide whether I needed to quit or not. My brain being my brain, it was telling me that this was, of course, the only sensible choice. There were nothing but good reasons why I should quit immediately and be embarrassed that I ever attempted this to begin with. I imagined how many people listen to my podcast and stop it whenever the music stuff starts. I know no one much has said anything nice about my music in recent memory, apart from non-musicians being startled to hear that some people try to make music at all. Well, it's in me to do and the prospect of turning most of it over to other people to do, who have no particular thing they're trying to do or say, and paying them a whole lot more money than I have in order to make something that doesn't quite sound like the stuff on the radio, I mean Spotify, on all those new albums no one is listening to, that doesn't seem worth doing to me either. Making memorable digital demos of my old 4-track stuff as best I can without busting the bank or buying the farm and without not getting to do much of it myself, leaving all that stuff to other people who I need to pay... I guess I have that in me to do, so maybe I will. And putting stuff on Spotify really is like crying tears when it's already raining, but I think I'll do that anyway too, because I want to. I wasn't raised to feel that I get to do things just because I want to, but I don't owe my upbringing a damn thing besides learning the immeasurable worth of trying to listen a whole lot less to what other people think, especially when they function as nothing much besides externalized voices echoing my own depressive thinking and feeling. Sila. I mentioned to Michael Vetter that I was feeling a bit insecure about Moonlight, what with mixing the 12 microphone drumming and being told the drums sounded like poo and so on. So he sent me this. Mike, I've listened to this song like six times. It gets better every time. I love this song. I think the drumming is fantastic. Full of energy, has a, like a garage band kind of feel. 
I'd compare it to some music, but I didn't grow up with rock and roll, and everybody would know that, at least the ones that grew up with rock and roll. But anyways, this one has a real classic appeal. It's solid, really gets across exactly how you were feeling in that lab. And I love the Smurf chorus and the regular chorus and all the voices behind. It's just so full of energy. Nice work. Now, Michael's describing entirely the wrong song. And you know what? I don't care a bit. It's always nice when someone tries to make you feel better. You may recall that Megan was a worldly, a girl who grew up unchurched and with no knowledge of the Bible, in a home with little structure, the kind of little structure that so often makes churches or other communities that limit members' lifestyle choices seem so appealing to people like this by giving them that structure they never had and haven't, therefore, internalized. Megan got a job, as you may recall, working for a Plymouth Brethren Christian Church company where worldly employees weren't to socialize or eat with Brethren ones. Megan was smiling at Harry, a young Brethren guy who'd already gotten in trouble with his church group for fornication, the girl in question having married someone else once they'd both got reinstated to full membership status after confessing, repenting, and after a long time being forgiven. Well, Harry and Megan were told to stop smiling at one another and talking. So they began chatting and texting at work. They were told by their boss to stop doing this as well, and there was a memo sent out to all of the employees asking them to refrain from using technology to communicate for social reasons during work hours. And Megan got fired because of the obvious bond that was forming with Harry, giving Harry no church-permitted opportunity to see Megan ever in the course of his week, so he just started sneaking over to her apartment a couple of towns over, and sexual congress duly ensued. Now, Megan knew nothing of God or the Bible, and so started praying to the former and reading the latter. Harry, for his part, knows little of God or the Bible, despite attending church ten times a week, as is required of all members, and is completely not in any way a cult Christian church community. All Harry knows is if he's in trouble with his priests, as they call their elders, their leadership, or if he isn't, he needs to be right. And if he isn't right, he needs to do whatever it takes to get them to say that now he is right. He doesn't have to be right in his own eyes, of course, but in the estimation of his priests. They will tell him if his life is going in the wrong direction. They will tell him if his life is on the right path. From birth, Harry's conscience has been trained not to pursue paths of human, let alone Christian, consideration, kindness, love, and righteousness, but rather to make sure his priests aren't disapproving of him. That's the goal. That brainwashing goes bone deep, so once the glow of the frequent coitus he was having started to lose its sheen, the guilt about once again not being right with his priests overcame Harry, and he confessed everything. Harry was promptly shut up, which means being forbidden to socialize or eat with members of his community, members of said community already being forbidden to socialize or eat with anyone outside of it either. As required by the priests, the star-crossed lovers didn't see each other in person nor communicate in any way at all, but as Harry served out his sentence over the months, shut up in his parents' home, 23 years of age, sporadic textual communication started happening a bit. It started happening more and more. Megan decided to join the cult, reaching out to people like me on the internet who told her that was a terrible idea and that they don't genuinely allow people to join this group. I first contacted one of the elders in July and I wasn't actually able to meet with them until the end of September. 
up until that point, it was me constantly chasing and not really getting much response. I'd usually go between two to three weeks without having contact with them. I wanted to give the benefit of the doubt that, you know, he was a director of a company, so he was very busy. However, he would read my message almost straight away or within an hour of me sending it, but wouldn't actually get back to me until I started calling to chase. So looking back, it was obvious that they just wanted me to disappear and not be their problem anymore and hope that I would give up. But we did have this meeting and it was very obvious from that point that they did not want me to join. They even asked me what made me think that I was good enough to join them because they were a very prestigious group of people. And I've never encountered such a level of arrogance before in my life. They genuinely thought that they were better than everybody else because they were born into that. And they tried to make me feel better for not being born in. Um, they said like, oh, we know you can't help who you were born to, where you were born. It's not a matter of that. It's just that you're not us. You know, you were placed where you were placed. And unfortunately, it was outside of the brethren. So why would you join us? And honestly, it just, it made me kind of feel bad about myself. Like I wasn't good enough initially. It's obvious now that they don't want people joining. Since then, I have asked to have another meeting and was met with a few different excuses. And then eventually they gave me a contact for another person who hasn't responded to me. So kind of just palmed me off to somebody else. And I feel like if I continue to try and get in contact, I think it'll be a bit like a wild goose chase and I'll be passed from person to person without any real answers whatsoever. I wasn't allowed to ask any questions when I met with them. They just kind of spoke down to me the whole time. The only time they allowed me to speak was when they asked me what I was doing there. Why was I contacting them? Other than that, I wasn't really allowed to say anything. And it kind of felt like I was being scolded by two older men, kind of like authority figures, I guess. It wasn't very nice. And it certainly wasn't a kind of welcoming, yeah, of course you can join us, we'd love to have you, experience that you would expect from a church. Then, just when Megan felt she could trust Harry to stop blocking her and shutting her out in his efforts to get right with his cult community, just when his weekly priestly visits were starting to fail to result in a knee-jerk reblocking by Harry of her online connections to him each time, and just when things were warming up between them online again, shattered trust starting to heal, Harry got let back into relatively good standing with his cult and can eat and socialize with them again 
is required to attend the ten meetings a week again, and so he messaged Megan one last time and told her he's done communicating with her, as all that was just in case he didn't ever get back in. So for the final two weeks before Harry was let back into the community, he stopped blocking me. So we used to talk and then he would feel guilty a few days later and block me out again. And that had gone on for four months in total. The longest we didn't talk was three weeks, but he would always come back eventually. But in the final two weeks, I get the sense that he had given up hope that he was ever going to make it back in. So he kind of had a sod it attitude. We'll just do it anyway. So we spoke almost every day for those two weeks. And he would block me without telling me uh, before he had a meeting with his priest, just so that he wouldn't be tempted to talk to me or tempted to block me again afterwards if he felt bad. So on his meeting days, we wouldn't talk. And I thought we'd finally got some progress, you know. He had gotten over the guilt of speaking to me. And, you know, he would come out of his priest meeting and would start talking to me straight away. He said that he wanted us to be just friends. So we were speaking as just friends. And then he got very upset with me because he thought that I wasn't envisioning a future together with him. So I stopped treating him as just a friend. And we started talking as something more. So we had a discussion because he was telling me about this future that he wanted with me. And I just said to him, you know, the only way we can have this future is if you were to leave because I've tried to join and they don't want me. They don't want me to join. So there is only one way. And he said that he didn't want to leave his brothers because they had been through so much together. And he said he didn't feel he was ready to be making that sort of decision. And then two days after that conversation, he got back in and he said that he didn't want to risk talking to me anymore. I thought was kind of silly because he's been risking it this whole time. You know, if they found out that we were still in contact, he would have been in trouble. So really, nothing has really changed. I thought that maybe they were kind of losing their grip on him. But in the end, that didn't really matter because he ended up getting back into the community and we had to say our goodbyes. However, he hasn't blocked me. He said that if I ever truly needed him, that he would be there for me. But he also said that if I was to reach out, he would block me again. So it's a little bit conflicting there. Now that Harry's back in, living an approved Christian life with an approved Christian attitude, Harry doesn't want to risk further punitive measures being taken against him. The conversation started because I realised that I had been blocked. So I text him asking if he had blocked me on WhatsApp, and that's when he come back. 
and told me that he had got in and that he didn't want to risk it anymore by talking to me. He was all over the place in this conversation. He was quite cold and cruel to me throughout. But upon reflection, I think he was doing that so I would hate him in the hopes that it would be easier for us both to move on if I did. He did apologise a lot, but he was very hurtful. Um, it's quite hard to talk about, actually. He did admit that he was using me in case he didn't get back in because, you know, no one else in his life was talking to him. Um, people at work were treating him poorly. So all he had was me. And that's why I think in those last two weeks he gave up hope that he would ever get back in and he didn't really care about what would happen because he just needed interaction with somebody. And I spoke to him knowing that this was a very real possibility that he would get back in and he wouldn't want to talk to me again. But I just didn't want him to suffer. I didn't want him to go through this alone. So I was happy to be there for him. But to know that he was using me for that, it really hurt. Especially because I've been nothing but kind and understanding throughout this whole process. And I feel like he kind of picked me up and then dropped me again whenever he wanted to. He further communicated textually that of course their relationship wasn't right and God couldn't have been in it as his elders don't accept it and so they never were in love, the two of them. It never meant anything real or human, not really, because it wasn't right. It was just sin, in fact, two sinny sinners sinning sinfully. No love, no significance, no emotional bonding, no trust and no sharing. I truly don't know how he can think that he is a good Christian and that he is now right, as the brethren would say, right enough to get back in. Because, firstly, this whole time he never should have been speaking to me. So he's being deceitful to his priests directly, but pretty much to everyone around him. They all assumed he was getting right, and he wasn't. He never stopped the thing that, that got him in trouble in the first place, which was having a relationship with me. Not only that, though, but there were still elements of sneaking around. You know, he would wait until everyone had gone to bed to FaceTime me or call me or message me. You know, he waited until his family had all left to go to church and then FaceTimed me whilst they were gone. And then his treatment towards me. He apologised a lot, but it never felt, it never felt genuine because he would apologise for blocking me, but then he would block me again and then he'd come back again. And also in our final conversation, he obviously admits to, using me because he never thought that he would get back in. I think that he did want to leave. 
and I think that he did want to be with me. I just think he was scared. He kept saying that he had to be right and he had to get right. And I think he was really worried that something awful would happen to him if he left and that it would be all his fault. He really worried about what God would do to us. And I think that I mean, the brethren obviously put that fear into him, but I think with his priest meetings, they just manipulated that fear. And that's why he was never able to. He said that, you know, he was very happy to have his family back, but he could see the cost and that he wasn't happy anymore. He wanted to have the best of both worlds and that wasn't possible. So he chose what he knew which was the brethren. It does make me sad for the life that he might now have because he's had a taste of the outside world and what it can offer him. So I don't think he'll ever truly be happy in there now because he's seen what it's like on the other side. I mean, they say ignorance is bliss for a reason, right? I am worried that he might now be married off to someone so that I can't have a hold on him anymore, as the brethren would see it, and that he might end up in a loveless marriage because of that. I really hope that he does find the strength to be able to leave one day for himself, because I think he would be a lot happier on the outside. And I really wish he could see what they've done with exploiting his fear and the isolation as well and all the the damage that's caused, maybe then he wouldn't see them as his family anymore. When Megan told podcast contributor Emily what Harry had done, Emily simply said, What a cult! Only she didn't say cult like I did right there. Megan is, obviously, devastated. She feels betrayed, and I think she has been. She'd prayed to God that he would help her pry Harry loose once and for all from this controlling Christian group, daily crushing souls in Christ's name, just as Harry prayed with his priests about him being more committed to cutting off non-members like Megan so Harry could get right and get back into happy fellowship with his fellow cult members. I'll leave you to draw your own conclusions about any morals that could be drawn from the whole tragic tale of Megan and Harry. I just hope that it helps someone else before they decide to fall for someone who's emotionally unavailable and is a bit of a twat. I tried a bit to give the song I wrote in my living room one Saturday afternoon after seeing her at a shopping mall those many years ago some of the flavor of the new country music I knew this woman loved the most. But I wrote this song and recorded the parts in an hour in the one go and mostly put it away for a couple of decades. It sounded like this. Thank you.
played it live a couple of times, but soon forgot all about it. She's never heard it, which I'm just fine with. And that was the end of that song, Until Now. This song was a nice break from silly and loud songs, which meant it needed subtlety, perhaps not my strong suit. And I didn't want it to just sound like more typical me, either. Where's the fun in that, right? I wanted it to have something different about it, so I worked hard to try to keep it between the ditches, as it were. On the one side, I ran the risk of making something that didn't sound very country at all, just like more me, or in fact, it turned out, I ran the very real risk of sounding almost exactly like Neil Young's After the Gold Rush. And on the other side, I ran the very real risk of making a recording with me singing in a goofy, distracting imitation of my idea of a country voice. This song got worked on in bits around getting well and truly stuck in my driveway for several days and being without electricity for a day due to a violent snowstorm that we had. Much of the song was recorded with a very stiff back I'd earned fair and square by trying to walk on the steep top end of my driveway that my truck had failed to navigate and falling pretty hard on my hip and shoulder on some ground frozen rock solid. Because the truck had been wallowing in icy futility in the middle of the lengthy steep driveway, the guy hadn't been able to get in to plow all the snow that had fallen either. Oddly, my car had been in the shop getting winter tires put on when the snow hit, half melted, and then flash froze. So I got a taxi and got permission to leave my car up the road at my neighbor's, hiking to and from it to drive into work each day all week. After more falling in my driveway at the end of the workday and even resorting to hiking in through the forest to avoid the driveway, falling over snow-covered stumps and fallen branches in the dark several times and getting two boots filled to overflowing with the knee-high snow my feet were then melting for me, I used a metal garden rake as a cane to get safely up and down the icy driveway for two days then stopped and bought some ice cleats for my boots once I found out there were such things. Great things, those latter items. Just don't walk around in the house with them on. They've got little steel spikes across your toes and heels. I'd emailed Evan a guide track for this song a few months back. So you left and we never spoke again. So you left and we never spoke again. He'd emailed back a few drum options, which I copied and pasted my way through. So you left, and we never spoke again. So you left, and we never spoke again. Mm-hmm. 
Listening to it, I realized that the bass I'd done for Evan in the guide track was pretty wrong. So I redid it to fit the mood the song was now starting to have, changing the chords entirely in three places in the song by playing them on the bass, while the acoustic guitar in the guide track retained the original chords until I redid them later. So you left, and we never spoke again. So you left, and we never spoke again. Then I did a bunch of vocal stuff, changing the lyrics Shopping Mall to the name of the actual shopping mall in question. Then that time in the shopping mall when I saw you from behind. Then that time at the base show when I saw you from behind. Then I did some keyboard strings, which tied together all the chopping rhythmic stuff with a glue of smooth, smearing, sustaining sound. some piano. And a rough harmonica track I didn't like much, just to see if it might work, even though a harmonica doesn't play all of the notes present in a song with a minor chord like this one has. I found to my dismay that I'd kind of committed myself to harmonica fills rather than lead guitar bits, but decided to leave them until last to do properly later, though I don't generally play harmonica. Then I layered in acoustic guitars, including the changed chords that had been reflected in all of the new instrument parts, but were still wrong in the guide track until this point, thinking if any song called for a Nashville-strung acoustic, it was me trying to do a country song like this one. I didn't want to do the chunk-chunk-chunk strumming with a pick thing and wanted more of a tender, nostalgic feel, so I did my version of finger-picking, though it's hard for me to fret properly for that, given the nerve damage in my left hand and all. Then I tinkered with the vocals more, trying to give what is a very repetitive song some different moods and parts. And so you left, and we never spoke again. And so you left, and we never spoke again. I found I wanted the final verse, which I'd wanted to start suddenly, kind of surprisingly, rather than according to the established pattern, which Evan figured out pretty quickly after a few tries, to be almost like a bridge. So I used a guitar pick on the guitar parts for that verse to make them sound different from the others, strumming hard and then turning it down in the mix.
Then I replayed the piano for that part too, playing lower and trying to hit some hard Johnny Cash piano chords. But finding the piano just blends in with the guitars, which might be okay, I guess. trying to drop off to sleep at night, suddenly thought, hey, I think I want to do marching band snare drums for that bit. Played hard and then turned down, just like the piano. And so I got out of bed and did that late at night, which one can do when one lives in the woods, as I do. Then a few days later, I got home from school before it was too dark to fool around with my truck, so I went up and salted the driveway more, pumped up the tires fully, which were a bit low, and tried to very slowly drive it out of the ruts it was in, nearly dropping a wheel off the driveway in so doing and risking tipping the whole vehicle into the forest. I made very slight progress with it and was about to give up and idly started fooling with the four-wheel drive controls and realized that I didn't know if the four-wheel drive was actually working when I pressed it or not. And I was sitting on an icy driveway, right? So I left it in gear, slowly spinning its tires, and hopped out and walked around it on the newly salted driveway, wearing the magical, marvelous ice cleats. I noticed that only the rear tires were spinning on the polished ice. That seemed to me very much like two-wheel drive, so I got in, and started pressing four-wheel drive traction control buttons. I'd always just left it in auto four-wheel drive mode and assumed that it had been working. And I learned something. If the truck is in regular drive and you press auto or low-speed four-wheel drive mode, it gives you a trouble light. It's a wrench. I guess the wrench means you'd need to use a wrench to fix this thing if you actually wanted four-wheel drive. But something odd happened. I put it in low instead of drive and hit the high-speed four-wheel drive button on the dash like I was going to be in drive. Bazinga! I got the words four-wheel drive on my dash instead of the wrench I'd always gotten before, and then I very carefully drove the vehicle, fishtailing only a bit up and out of the icy hell from whence it had been stuck fast, and parked it up the road at my neighbor's house beside my car, and hiked back with my ice cleats and my 40-pound plastic bag of cat litter that had been sitting in the truck for over a week. I didn't have to carry it down, though. I just put it on the road and gave it a push with my boot every now and then, and the 40-pound plastic bag of cat litter glided very majestically all the way down the road to and then halfway down my driveway itself. My neighbors are no doubt pretty annoyed to have not one but two of my vehicles parked in their large driveway. If they are, they're not saying anything. With the truck moved, I can get my driveway plowed now and see about the car. Then I thought I'd add some clean electric using the vintage sound of the amp and its tremolo knob. So the song ended up without a genuine bridge or a dramatically quiet, stripped-down final chorus exactly, but a nod toward both of those, with me thinking of how Led Zeppelin's Stairway to Heaven 
has a really loud bit that's quite heavy sounding, but it's still just acoustics being strummed with more urgency. Then I redid that harmonica stuff to see about using it as a lead part, but without sounding too much like Neil Young's After the Gold Rush. And then I had a song. You looked into my eyes And you told me how blue they were And I looked into yours And I liked how they were green You pulled me in and kissed me hard And I was overcome I had to pause And you asked me what's wrong you thought I didn't like it I wanted you But you wanted me To only want your body You didn't need me in your life So you said, and I believed you And so you left, and we never spoke again So you left, and we never spoke again That the world of women seemed to pass me by Like a beggar on the sidewalk Trying to score some change You said to me, and I believed it You thought I was an angel You also said you wouldn't know what to do with an angel I wanted you But you wanted me To only want your body You didn't need me in your life So you said, and I believed you And so you left, and we never spoke again So you left, and we never spoke again Then that time at the base show 